morning. Good morning. So it's great to be with you all for the first Sunday of the new year, and we're at the beginning of a new series. Uh, Tony kicked off the series last week, our, our series Villains, uh, with Herod, and kind of showed us how Herod is one of the villains of the Bible. Uh, and today we're going to continue the series with someone you may not, right off the bat, classify as a villain. It's actually been fun this week as people have come up to me and said, how is Samson a villain? Um, but we're gonna, that's what we're going to see today as we walk through the story of Samson. In case you don't know who Samson is, Samson is the final major character in the book of Judges. And usually we look at him as a champion for the people of Israel, not a villain. Um, but as we're going to see today, uh, Samson is probably not the best role model, not somebody that you want to emulate your life after for most of what he does in his life. So this all kind of arose because last year we at Ivan Rest, a few of us here at Ivan Rest, did a Bible study on the book of Judges. Now, if you haven't read Judges recently, I recommend going home today and this week reading Judges again. Um, Judges is a fascinating book that I think that we can think is just a bunch of simple stories. But when you read it carefully, you realize that these stories are very nuanced and they're far more in-depth than we, you can get at first glance. And, and really, none of those stories as much as the story of Samson, which we're going to look at today. So just so you can get some context for the Samson story, who I said is the last of the judges in the book of Judges, um, in the book of Judges, we have this kind of cycle. So uh, Judges starts right at the time of Joshua, in which the Israelites are doing very well. They're following God, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and, and things are going really well for them. So they're kind of on top. After Joshua dies, though, they kind of fall away from God and they get into some trouble. And so God raises up a judge and they do better again for a while. And then when the judge dies, they fall away again. And then a new judge comes, and they do better for a while. And that's the cycle through the entire book of Judges, leading us to Samson. Now, in this book, there are two major gods the Israelites struggle with, right? So they struggle uh, by being tempted by uh, Baal, uh, who is the, the god of the sun and storms, or in other words, he's the god of power. He's got strength and, and kind of power in that way. And they wrestle with Asherah who is the goddess of the moon and sex and war. So these two gods are, are constantly causing Israel to fall throughout the entire book of Judges. And keep them in mind because they'll come into play later on in this story as well. So um, here's the deal this morning. Uh, we are going to do something that I hadn't tried until the first service today, and it went all right there. Uh, but we're going to try it again here. We're going to actually try to tackle the entire story of Samson in this small little time that we have here. So that's four chapters. So in case you were looking at it in your bulletin and you saw chapters 13 through 17 and you thought that I forgot the chapter amount, no, that's, we're going to go through all four of those chapters this morning. Uh, we're going to try to take the entire story because I think you'll find it really interesting if we do. Uh, but what that means is that we're going to have to hustle a little bit here at the beginning. There's easily three plus hours of material here and we've got to try to do it in about 30 minutes. So uh, hopefully you can keep, a lot, keep up. If you lose your place, we will reset in the middle, um, or you can listen to it again online, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along the whole way through. So if you are ready to go, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 13, which is where we'll begin, and just keep flipping along through the book of Judges as we, uh, as we go all the way through chapter 16. So, the story of Samson begins with a woman who is barren and childless. Now, in this culture, it's a really big deal for a woman to be childless because if you were child, because children were viewed as gifts from God. So if you were childless, that meant that, uh, what you thought it meant, that God was either displeased with you 
or he had forgotten you altogether. It was a big deal not to have children in this culture. So Samson's mother would have been feeling that way. Uh, One other thing I want to quickly point out before we move on past Samson's mother, if you were to read uh, the story of Samson's mother in chapter 13, you'll notice that she actually has a very significant role in the story. She meets an angel. She... uh, The angel tells her that she's going to have Samson, but you'll notice that she's not named, okay? So Samson's father is Manoah, but we know, and even though Samson's mother has a significant role, she's never given a name in the entire story. Now, before you think, well, that's just because women in the Bible don't get their due, they don't get their lesser, that's not the case in in this particular context. Samson's mother is one of the more important people in this first story, but there is a reason she's not named, and we'll get to that later, so just wait for that. So you notice that Samson's mother's not named, and she feels that she's been forgotten or she's displeased God somehow, but we see that the angel tells her that this is not the case, that Samson's mother has not been forgotten by God, and that, she, that God's actually going to use her for something fantastic, and that is to be the mother of Samson. So Samson's mother, after meeting an angel, gets pregnant, but, and the angel tells her that this child is going to be special for two reasons. First is probably the one you already knew. Uh, Samson is going to be super strong. I mean, ridiculously strong. And we'll actually give an example of how strong that is a little bit later. But Samson's going to be super strong. He's going to be blessed by God with supernatural kinds of strength. The second reason that Samson's going to be special is not, of something, not because of something God gives him, but of something that God requires of him. The angel tells Samson's mother that Samson is going to be something called a Nazarite. Now, if you're not familiar with what it means to be a Nazarite, let me tell you. Anyone could be a Nazarite. Any of you, actually, if you wanted to be, could be a Nazarite if you chose to do uh, what that requires. To be a Nazarite, you simply had to take the Nazarite vow. Uh, Now, usually the Nazarite vow was not taken for a lifetime. It would be taken for a short period of time, maybe a couple years, maybe three years, maybe five years, however long you decided to take it. Samson is unique in this case because his vow is going to be a lifelong vow. But if any of you wanted to take a Nazarite vow, this is what you'd have to do. First thing you'd have to do is vow that during your time of, as a Nazarite, you won't drink any wine at, or any fermented drinks at all for that matter, or even eat grapes or raisins. It's a pretty big deal. You're not allowed to mess with those things. The second part of the Nazarite vow is that you're not allowed to touch corpses. Now, in our culture, that's not as big of a deal, but in this one, it was. So no wine, no corpse touching. The final thing, if you want to be a Nazarite, and this is probably the one you're familiar with uh, in Samson's case, is you're not allowed to cut your hair. So if you wanted to be a Nazarite, no wine, no corpse touching, and no hair cutting. If you were committing to those three things, you could be a Nazarite just like Samson. Uh, Keep these in mind. They're on your outline as well. These will be important throughout the entire story. So remember these three things. Samson had to commit to those three things to be a Nazarite. Now, at the end of chapter 13 here, there are a whole bunch of interesting things that we could talk about in regards to Samson's parents and their interaction with the angel, but we just don't have time for that this morning. So I've, I recommend you read chapter 13 on your own and kind of look at those things. Um, but we see at the end of the story that Samson's mother becomes pregnant and she has a baby just like the angel said she would, and, sh- and she names him Samson. Now, just so that we can have some reference for moving on, Samson means sun, like the big yellow ball in the sky, sun, S-U-N. And, and then chapter 13 tells us he's blessed with the Holy Spirit from day one. Now chapter 13 ends without giving us any insight into Samson's childhood. We don't get to see how he grows up or what he goes through while he's growing up. Because when we open the story back up in chapter 14, now Samson's a young man. 
He's grown up. Um, and and we, like I said, we didn't get to see how. Though the beginning of chapter 14 does, however, give us some insight into, some of the, into Samson's um, demeanor and who, what kind of person he is. And honestly, the struggles that we see here at the beginning of chapter 14 will kind of uh, continue out through his entire life. So as we open up chapter 14, we see that Samson's a young man, and he becomes smitten with a young Philistine woman. Now, young men are smitten with young women all the time, so that's not that big of a deal. But in this case, Samson goes to his parents, and he demands that they go get her to be his, his wife. Now, this interaction is a really good insight into who Samson is. You see, Samson is supposed to be a champion for Israel, someone who represents faithful service and obedience to God, but the way that he treats his, fam- his parents is not faithful to the fifth commandment. He's being incredibly disrespectful here. Uh, because in this culture, it was the parents' right or privilege or responsibility to pair their son with a wife. That was something that they got to do. And, and the Bible tells us here that his parents were not particularly excited about the woman he's chosen. Now, if you were to continue to read on in chapter 14, you'd see that that this woman, the Bible actually tells us that this woman that Samson's smitten with is from God. And so the problem here is not with the woman herself, it's with this way that Samson asks for what he wants. We'd be having a very different conversation if Samson had gone to his parents honoring them. If he had said, hey mom and dad, I, I get that this isn't the way things normally go, and I get that you're not super excited about my choice, but I really feel like God is leading me towards this woman. If Samson had gone to his parents in that way, honoring them, yet still doing something that they weren't excited about, we'd be having a different conversation. He would be keeping the fifth commandment and doing what God was calling him to do. But Samson doesn't do that, does he? Uh, He he comes in and just demands that they give him what he wants. So there's another thing that we can notice here in the interaction that we have with Samson's first wife, and that is the fact that, again, she's not named. Okay, so now so far in this story, we have two major women. We have Samson's mother and his first wife, both of which do not have names. And you might be starting to wonder, well, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. Well, we'll get to it. It's a little cliffhanger right now. You're going to have to wait, but it will mean something in the end. So at this point, you might be thinking, okay, obviously it wasn't good for Samson to be disrespectful to his parents. But that doesn't really make him a villain, does it? And I I would agree with that. That wouldn't. We've all been disrespectful to our parents at one point or another, and I wouldn't classify us all as villains. But it does get worse from here. So in verse 5 of chapter 14, we see the first of of Samson's many major violations. As he's walking down to Timnah to see his future wife, he's attacked by a lion and he rips it apart, right? Now that wouldn't be a big problem for anybody but Samson, but if you remember, one of the things he's not supposed to do is touch corpses, right? Right? Well, when you rip a lion in half, you've just created a corpse, and he's touching it, right? So he's violated the one part of his Nazarite vow. Now, you may be thinking the same way I did when I read this. Wait a minute, that's not fair, right? He was attacked by a lion. What is he supposed to do? Is he supposed to just let it eat him? No, of course not. The, the problem here is not that he, did, that, he had, that, he, that he killed the lion when he was defenseless, um, The problem here is that he doesn't do anything to seek to make it right. So keep your finger here in Judges um, chapter 14, but flip with me to number 6, verse 9. We'll come back to Judges in a minute, but we have to take a look here at number 6, verse 9, which says this, 
It says, if someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sin by being in the presence of a dead body. That same day, they are to consecrate their head again. They must rededicate themselves to the Lord for the same period of, of dedication, and they must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because they became defiled during their period of dedication. So the problem isn't necessarily that Samson touched the corpse. It's the problem that he doesn't do any of this to make it right. If he had gone and after touched the corpse, he had done the things that says here in Numbers 9, we'd be all set. He would have reset things and things would have been back the way they ought to have been. But Samson doesn't do any of that, does he? He actually doesn't, he doesn't seem to even care all that much because in a few minutes later, after ripping apart the lion, he meets back up with his parents and he doesn't even mention the interaction to them. So as the story continues, Samson finishes his visit and heads back the way he came and he violates his first vow again. Uh, again, we see that he separates from his parents to go see the corpse that he has made and when he gets there and finds the lion's body, inside of it is a beehive. And this time, in case you were wondering, well, the first time, that wasn't really voluntary. The lion jumped on him and he ripped it apart. Maybe he didn't understand that that counted too. Um, this time, he intentionally, voluntarily reaches into the corpse and takes out the honey and he actually eats it. And in this case, we actually have a double violation. Because first, he violates his Nazarite vow because he touches the corpse. But eating the honey is not only a violation of his Nazarite vow, it's a violation of basic Mosaic law. The honey was unclean. He shouldn't have eaten it, even just, to be a, just being a good Israelite. But we see here that Samson has such a low regard for this part of his vow, and honestly the Mosaic law, that he actually takes his honey, the honey that he's got, which is unclean, and gives it to his parents as well, making them also unclean. And so at this point, you may be starting to get the idea of why we might classify Samson as a villain. But you might not be sold yet because it isn't really, I mean, maybe it's not that bad yet. But as we see, it's only going to get worse from here. So, Samson's ready to get married. This, this marriage is going to happen and they're making preparations for that. Uh, and and the, in your Bible, it says that Samson goes to prepare a wedding feast which isn't a big deal. We have wedding feasts now. They had wedding feasts back then. They would be week-long events. They were really big deals. And, and honestly, for almost everybody in, in, in the whole Bible, the wedding feast is a very, very good thing. But we actually miss something here in our English accounts. In your Bibles, it will say that Samson went to, provide, or, um, to prepare a wedding feast. If you were to read it, though, in Hebrew, it would say that uh, Samson goes and prepares a mitzvah. And so for all of you who know Hebrews, you just, Hebrew, you just went, oh, that makes sense. But for the rest of you, you probably have no idea why that's significant. So the word mitzvah is actually a relatively common word in the Old Testament. It's used 46 times. And, and all of these times are, are, are surrounding feasts or wedding feasts or things like that. And most of the time, it's a very good thing. But in almost all of the cases in which the term mitzvah is used, it means a feast, a banquet, or a dinner with a focus on drinking wine. So Samson's throwing a wine party, right? There's a specific nuance that rolls with the word mitzvah. And so at this, part, you, at this point, you might, you might be starting to understand why that's important. 
because that, make, that causes Samson to fall in two of the three pillars he was supposed to have vowed to, right? No corpse touching, violated. No wine drinking, violated. Samson at this point truly seems to be showing very little regard for the vow that he has made. He seems to not care much about it at all. And then the story continues. Samson, at his wedding feast, makes a bet with his groomsmen. He says, he tells them a riddle. And he says, if you can solve this riddle, I will give you 30 sets of clothing. And these are pretty substantial sets of clothing. Most people only had one or two sets. To bet 30 is a big deal. And so he says to them, if you solve the riddle, I'll give you 30 sets of clothing. If you don't solve the riddle, you have to all give me 30 sets of clothing. And so he tells them the riddle, and the men can't figure it out. And so they get really anxious because they don't think they can afford the 30 sets of clothing. And so they go to Samson's wife and they beg her to, they, well, they don't beg her, they threaten her. They say, tell us the answer or we're going to kill you. And so Samson's wife goes to Samson and repeatedly tries to get him to tell her the answer. Which also, if you read that, you'll show that Samson seems to care very little for the fact that his wife is distressed at all. Um, but finally, he does give her the answer. She shares it with the men and they come back and answer the riddle. And at that point, Samson flips out. He loses his mind. He runs to a town about 20 miles away. He kills 30 people. He takes their clothes and pays his debt, which again violates the whole corpse-touching thing, which you'll see by the time we get to the end of the story. He doesn't really care about that one at all. After he pays his debt, he then storms home to his father's house, meaning he doesn't stay with his wife, meaning he didn't consummate his marriage, which means he didn't make it official. So at the end of chapter 14, that we see that Samson's father-in-law, not wanting his daughter to be disgraced, gives her away to one of his companions. All right, so at this point, we have flown through two chapters of the Bible. And hopefully you've been able to follow, so, follow along so far, but in case you're scrambling to catch up, let me just give you the highlights. We have Samson, who's a super strong but not very good dude. He's violated two of his three Nazarite vows and seems to care very little about that. He's also shown almost no respect for the Mosaic law or for his parents, for that matter. He also doesn't seem to care much about his wife, the one that he disrespected his parents for in the first place to get. And then we have this other thing in which the two women, two significant women in the story so far have not been named. All right? So that kind of brings us back up to speed. Hopefully you're ready to keep going. We're going to start on the beginning of chapter 15. So at the beginning of chapter 15, Samson finds out that his wife has been given away and he rages out again. He loses it again and he runs out and he goes, catch, and, goes and catches a bunch of foxes or jackals. The word could be either one of those. And, uh, and he takes torches, he ties their tails together and they run out into the fields and burn up all the Philistine fields. Now in case, and I actually think I saw this on a Sunday school poster once, in case you thought Samson went and caught 300 foxes all at once and kept them in some kind of big corral, that's probably not the case, right? He has to travel all over the land of Israel to burn up these fields. He probably catches them two or four at a time and then lets them go, right? So it's not this big fox corral, just to clear that up for everybody if you were thinking that. I used to think that for a long time. So he catches these foxes, he burns down all the fields, and this, and this actually starts this kind of revenge cycle through chapter 15. Uh, the Philistines get angry that he burns down all their fields, obviously. So they run and they, they go and they kill his wife and his father-in-law. When Samson finds out that they did that, he gets really mad and he kills a bunch of Philistines. Then the Philistines get mad about that and they start oppressing the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel go to Samson and say, hey man, you've made things worse for us. 
And so, so Samson makes a deal with him. He says, you can turn me into the Philistines as long as you don't kill me yourself. They agree to that deal. So remember, they bind him up. They take him to the Philistines. When he gets there, he rips the, the, the uh, bindings. He grabs a donkey bone and he kills a whole bunch more Philistines. Now the donkey bone is again the corpse touching thing. Although he's killed so many people at this part, point and touched so many corpses that that's not really even significant anymore, but it's still there. So it start, we have this revenge cycle that runs all the way through chapter 15, and that's kind of how it works. Samson gets mad, he does something. The Philistines retaliate, and then Samson gets mad again, and it just keeps going that way. But there is something really significant I want to point out in verses 18 and 20 of chapter 15. In verses 18 and 20 of chapter 15, we get the first time Samson actually calls out to God. Up, in the, up until this point, he hasn't done that. Up until this point, he's just kind of done whatever whim he had. But in, chat, but in verses, uh, <clears throat> sorry, verses 18 through 20, he calls out to God. Now, he does give God credit for, what he, for, for the victory that he's just won, but the reason he calls out to God is that he got really tired after he, he finished killing all those Philistines, and he was thirsty, and he was afraid he was going to die. So he called out to God, and God provided for him. So what we see here in Samson's life is that he only seems to care about God when he needs something. And that's a problem because that's kind of been Israel's whole deal through the book of Judges. When things go well, they don't need God. When things go poorly, all of a sudden they do again. Now remember, Samson is supposed to rise above that. He's supposed to lead the people of Israel outside of that cycle and all he's doing is perpetuating it. So chapter 15 ends by telling us that Samson went on to lead Israel for 20 years, which is a good thing. God continued to use Samson even in his very incomplete faithfulness. And that's how chapter 15 closes. So now we've made it through three chapters of the Bible, and now we're at the beginning of chapter 16. You're all doing well. So right away at the beginning of chapter 16, we see Samson's weakness for women get the best of him again. After violating the best of him again, and he again violates Mosaic law, and he spends the night with a prostitute, who, interestingly enough, is again not named. So we have three women so far, none of which are named. So the Philistines find out that he's with this prostitute, and they, and they make a plan to ambush him and kill him at the city gates when he comes out the next morning. But if you remember the story, Samson has other plans. He finds out about this plot, and he decides to take matters into his own hands. So he wakes up in the middle of night, goes to the city gates, and just rips it off its hinges. And when he does that, all the people waiting to ambush him run away. Now you might be wondering, wait a minute, why would they run away? Right? They had him outnumbered. They were there to kill him in the first place, but they just run away. Well, let me put a little bit of context on this, this door that he rips off. So just to remember, the city gates were meant to keep out armies. Right? Besieging armies, armies that are coming to take your city, the city gate's supposed to keep them out. Not one guy. And so, we actually have archaeological data that suggests the gates of Gaza, where we are, would have been around 10 feet high, around 9 feet wide, and anywhere from 1 to 3 feet thick. Right? It's not the little door that we have in the back of church here. This is a monster door. There's also a very real possibility that the wooden doors would have been reinforced with metal. Remember, they're supposed to keep out battering rams and armies and things like that. So you, some doors had metal wrapped around them. So when we talk about this door, on the low side, meaning that it was 10 by 9 by 1 without any metal, the door would have weighed around 5,000 pounds. 
On the high side, meaning we have a three and a half foot door with metal, it would have weighed around 21,500 pounds. So, Samson takes that, somewhere between 5,000 and 21,000 pounds, he rips it off his hinges, and by the way, he carries it for 40 miles. Okay? The city where Samson rips the door off and where he drops it off are 40 miles apart. So if you are the besieging army and you see him do that, you'd probably run away too, right? You don't want anything to do with it. would be like, calm down, Samson, we didn't mean it, right? Guy was a beast. So now we've made it to verse 4 of chapter 16. It's probably the most famous story in Samson's life. It's the story of Samson and Delilah. Now, some of you might already noticed, but what's the first thing that we realize about the story of Samson and Delilah? Up until this point, we've had three women in the book of, or the story of Samson, none of which have been named, and right off the bat, we get Delilah being named. That should immediately make us go, that's interesting, I wonder why that is. And you see, so what's interesting here is that uh, the Bible is, is a really nuanced book, right? There, it tells a simple story so that we can get facts, but then it also, told, and many times, will tell a secondary story to make a bigger point. So it's most likely that Samuel, the prophet Samuel, is the one who wrote down the book of Judges. By the way that he tells Samson's story, he's actually telling two stories at once. He's telling us the story of Samson's life, what did he do and how did he do it, but he's also making a bigger point, and one of the ways he's doing that here is by naming certain people and not naming others. So we see when we look at the names, we talked about it earlier, Samson means son, and we see that Delilah means, in Aramaic, means night, and in Hebrew means temptress or seductress or seducer. We talked about it at the beginning. Israel, for the whole book of Judges, has been wrestling with two major gods. The first one is Baal, who is the sun god of power. Samson's name means sun, and he's super strong. The other one is Ashereth, who is the moon goddess, and she's the goddess of sex and fertility. Delilah means night and temptress or seducer. You can see that there's a bigger story going on here, right? That's kind of, it's kind of neat, right? Now, in just a minute, we'll talk about what the implications of that are. So you have one more cliffhanger. You have to wait a little bit to figure out what that means. We have to tell the end of the story first. So the story ends like this. Delilah is approached by the Philistine leaders, and she's bribed with silver, which always makes me think of Judas, but we don't want to make too many connections here. Delilah is approached by the Philistine leaders, and she's bribed to figure out the secret of Samson's strength. And she agrees. And so we get this story about where she goes and asks Samson what the secret of his strength is, and he lies to her three times, right? The first time she asks, he says seven fresh bowstrings would do it. Now, interestingly, bowstrings were made out of animal intestines. But like we said, we don't really care about the corpse-touching thing anymore. It's been violated so many times. The second thing he says is that if you tie me up with new ropes, I'll become weak. But he, they tie him up, he rips them out. That doesn't work either. The final one is interesting, though, because he says that if you braid my hair into a loom, I'll become weak. This one's interesting to me because though it doesn't sap Samson's strength, we know he ends up waking up, breaking the loom, and and still having his strength, he's kind of playing with fire, isn't he? Right? His last Nazarene vow here is that is his hair, and he's willing to have it get messed with. And so finally, 
We see that none of those three things work, but after a whole lot of nagging and a whole lot of begging day after day, Samson finally reveals his secret. He reveals the final part of his Nazarene vow. Now, we've clearly seen throughout this this story so far that he hasn't cared about the other two almost at all, but apparently he has kept the third one until now. So many of you probably have been thought or have been taught that the secret to Samson's strength was in his hair. But as we look at the story, we realize that's not the case, is it? There's something far more significant going on here. God is teaching a bigger lesson. The secret, the secret wasn't in the hair itself. It was in the fact that he finally violated the last part of his Nazarite vow. Up until this point, God had shown an amazing amount of grace. But now there was nothing left from Samson's side. And this is where the whole story comes together. If we stop and look back at Samson's story, we realize something amazing. We realize in the way that Samuel tells this story, that in this story, Samson's story is the story of Israel from the book of Judges and beyond. Samuel tells the story in a way that shows the constant struggle Israel had been working through and the results of their unfaithfulness. In this story, Samson represents Israel. And we see it in so many different ways. First, when Samson follows God, his supernatural strength is unbelievable. Just like Israel's during the time of Moses and Joshua. Fantastic things happen during that time, right? They're able to do things that you wouldn't think possible because they're following God. Well, and granted, during the time of Judges, it's the same way. We see supernatural things happen during the time of Deborah and Gideon and Ehud. But... When Samson fails to follow God and follows the tenets of Baal and Ashereth, chaos ensues. Power is used as rage, death and destruction and pain are caused for Samson and for everyone in his path. And all throughout the book of Judges, when Israel follows Baal or Ashereth, only destruction comes from it. We see in the story of Samson that Samson falls into the temptations of a foreign seducer. Delilah in this story, both in her name and her actions, represent Ashereth. She seduces Samson and betrays him. Throughout the book of Judges, Ashereth seduces and betrays Israel. Delilah saps Samson's strength found in God and brings him into bondage. Ashereth saps Israel's strength found in God and over and over and over again in the book of Judges and beyond brings them into bondage. We see see in this story that Samson cries out to God only when he needs help. And though he doesn't deserve God's help, God shows up anyway and takes care of Samson. Throughout the book of Judges and beyond, Israel cries out to God only when they need help. And even though they don't deserve it, God shows up anyway and takes care of his people. We see in the story of Samson that Samson disregards the promises and vows he made to God. And yet God doesn't leave him. He's gracious to him over and over and over again. We see it through the book of Judges and beyond that Israel has disregarded her promises and vows that they made to God. And yet God has not left them and has been gracious over and over and over again. But then there is the end of the story. And we see here in both the case of Israel and in Samson that this kind of, this kind of um, graciousness can't last forever. The story ends like this. After Samson is betrayed by Delilah, 
After he is seduced into violating all of his promises, he loses his strength. God's strength leaves him, and he's taken into bondage. The Philistines take him. They put out his eyes, and they chain him to a millstone. And his situation seems hopeless. See, the story of Samson is written to be a warning to Israel. They have followed the same path as Samson, and the same outcomes are waiting for them if they continue down that path. This story should have led them away from their current trajectory, but if you know the story of Israel, unfortunately it becomes a tragic foreshadowing of their coming future. Because Israel doesn't heed God's warning and eventually suffers the same fate as Samson. They're taken into exile and oppressed and put into a seemingly hopeless situation. But the story doesn't end with Samson chained to a millstone, does it? We see that Samson is weak, he's blind, that he is tied to a millstone, and all the promises of his youth seem, are seemingly gone. The en enemy has seemingly won. But then, after all Samson had done to disregard his vow, after his constant failure, after all he had done to violate what God had called him to do and to be, in the end he turns back to God. He seeks God's face. He asks for God to return to him. And when Samson does it, when he earnestly seeks God again and finally in his brokenness turns back to God, his strength is restored. And the story is even a little bit better than that. We looked at numbers earlier. And in that passage, it talks about the steps to restore someone who violates their Nazarite vow. Do you remember what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to shave their head, right? That was the beginning of their restoration. What happened to Samson after he was betrayed? His head was shaved. And the Bible tells us that he didn't shave it again. It says his hair began to grow. Which, interestingly enough, means the final act of his head shaving. When the Philistines shaved his head, they actually carried with it the, rest, the beginning of his restoration of his vow. That's kind of neat, right? In the, in the process of punishment, God began the restoration process using the enemy, and Samson didn't even realize it. So we see, the story of Samson is complex and interesting. It's written so an Israelite looking at it would see him or herself, that this, they would see the cycle that they had been living in and begin to work to break that cycle. But the amazing thing about the Bible is its timelessness. The story of Samson is written so that we can see the cycle we've been living in. Sure, in this story, Samson represents Israel, but he also represents you and I. Perhaps we have not been following God in the way that we ought to be. Maybe we haven't taken the commitment we made to God when we became Christians as seriously as we should. Maybe we found ourselves only seeking God when we need something rather than walking with him daily. Maybe we've been playing with fire and engaging in things that we know are not the way God would want us to live. Maybe we've just been angry or vengeful, or maybe it's any of the other numbers of things that could be found in this passage. If any of these or others fit your life story, then the story of Samson is your story. You see, Samson here had a choice. He had a choice to live his, his life as a hero or a villain. He could have done amazing things for the people of Israel. And unfortunately, he chooses for the majority of it 
to be a villain. But we have that same choice. So let's learn the lesson that Israel failed to. The lesson that there are consequences for not living the kind of life God has called us to. The lesson that says that the temptations of this world will not bring life, but they actually sap our strength and bring us to a place of pain, chaos, and destruction, like they did in Israel's journey and like they did in Samson's life. But let's also learn the lesson that God is a God of grace, long-suffering grace. He has patience with us and is constantly calling us back to follow him. And when we do, like Samson, we find the strength promised to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. In many ways, Samson is a villain of the Old Testament. But in many ways, we are villains of the New Testament story. We see in Samson's story that God would not leave him, no matter where he had been or what he had done. And we see in our story that no matter where we have been or what we have done, God will not 